Good morning and welcome to the latest episode of the new PL. I'm Paul, host of the new PL, and I'm very grateful you've taken the time to join us today. We believe business needs a new PL, one that is as much focused on principles and leadership as it is on profit and loss. Because we know if your principles are right and aligned with your purpose, and your leadership has a clear vision and focus and strength and empathy, then your business will be in profit and not loss in so many ways. This week's guest is Steve Sims. Steve has been dubbed the real-life Wizard of Oz. He founded his hugely successful high-end luxury concierge service, Bluefish, in the mid-1990s, and quickly built a reputation with his millionaire and billionaire clients for making the impossible possible. From private dinners at the feet of Michelangelo's David, to underwater tours of the Titanic, to being serenaded by Andrea Bocelli. Now a successful entrepreneur, author, coach, and keynote speaker for organizations as diverse as Harvard University, the Pentagon, and a host of Fortune 500 companies, Steve is focused on helping the next generation of entrepreneurs turn their own impossible into possible. So Steve, a very warm welcome to the new PNL. Thank you so much for taking the time to join us. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, I think it'd be great to sort of start the conversation by just giving listeners a bit of an overview of who you are, what you do, and who you do it for. Wow. Um, I'm a uh, creative dysfunctional misfit like the rest of the entrepreneurial world. Um, and wow, that is a big question. Um, <laughs> so, and, and I've never been asked it in that frame before. I'm the aggravated oyster. Um, and to, to not get into too deep a metaphor, getting kicked out of school at the age of 15, going onto a building site in the 80s, not having social platforms like Instagram to validate how inadequate my life was. I just knew deep down in my gut there had to be something else for me. I don't know what that reaction was for, um, but I knew I had to go and find it. Stuck on the build, building sites for a couple of years. Then I went off and did loads of other jobs to try and find my purpose, my why, my passion, yeah. all that kind of uh, stuff. Um, but I noticed one thing is I wasn't frightened of hard work, but I wasn't making money. Yeah. So I was putting all the hours in the day, but I wasn't making the cash. So I needed to ask someone. Um, and quite simply, I decided to go out and try and change the rooms I was in try and get into affluent circles, try and get in front of a millionaire. At the time, those were the, the holy grails. Um, now, if you're a millionaire in, in Manhattan, you're poor. Um, but, you know, I wanted to get in front of a millionaire and go, how come you're rich and, and I'm not? Um, and so without realizing it, I started building up this social club, these parties, these events. I was very good at marketing and branding. I only ever went for rich people because poor people don't pay for shit. I know that because I was poor and we don't pay for anything. We go to a bar and spend the entire night laboring over the same pint of beer. Um, so I didn't want to hang around with those people because I knew them very well. Um, so I went for rich people. And by doing that, I ended up doing branding, marketing and launched the world's first experiential concierge firm. And my goal, understand this, really clearly my goal was never to become this wish fulfillment agent this wizard of oz as forbes called me and give you some of the highlights sent people down to the titanic got them drums lessons with guns and roses stuck them on stage with a 
favorite rock band, had a walk down the white carpet with Sir Elton John at his Oscar party, um, closed down a museum in Florence for a private dinner party of six at the feet of Michelangelo's David, and then had Andrea Bocelli come in and serenade him. So I did all of these fantastical things, not because I was in awe of that, but I wanted to get the attention of the millionaire and then billionaires to go, why are you wealthy and I'm not? And to really get a grasp on that. Um, three years ago, I had the opportunity to write a book. Didn't think it would take off. Uh, I got paid well to do it. That's an important fact because when you haven't been paid to write a book, you write the book to get paid. Yeah. When you've been paid, you go, bollocks, I can write whatever I like now. I'm going to be completely unfiltered and call it as it is. Yeah. And so I did. And I released a book. Um, there you go. I did a podcast and I had one earlier. So uh, Bluefish in the Art of Making Things Happen. Released it about three years ago um, with the unfiltered, hey, this is how you do things. This is how a bricklayer from London can end up working with Elon Musk. And really just called it out to hopefully change people's perspectives and to challenge them to get uncomfortable. Um, and it took off. Very surprised. I didn't even have a website when it came out. Um, but now I coach and I speak all over the planet, getting entrepreneurs out of the way of the biggest obstacle, which nine times out of 10 is their head. Um, and that's what I do now. So at the front end of that answer, you talked about creativity and it's clearly a key component of your success, but also your, your client's success, whether they're actors or musicians or authors or highly innovative business people like Elon Musk. And it's also cited as one of the most sought after attributes all leaders want in their employees in business today. Um, your role is hugely creative, both in terms of the experiences you create, but also I would imagine in terms of the creative thinking you need to solve some of the problems you have along the way, organizing those experiences. So what's your view on how employees and entrepreneurs can better harness the creative thinking abilities that everyone seems to want and that lie inside of all of us. So I'm going to dumb it down because you come across to me as a very articulate, intelligent man. And I obviously don't. <laughs> so no, which gives, not true. That's which not gives, true. No, no, no. I, I have something that maybe you don't. Um, and it was my wife that actually came out with that. She actually at a dinner party said that my superpower was the superpower of ignorance, okay? Now, I thought I was gonna get divorced at the time when she called that out as my superpower, but she explained that I had no fear or identity that I would get any other answer other than a yes. You know, I would go forward with what I wanted with so much force, so much ignorance, so much commitment, so much clarity that this was gonna happen, that guess what, it would happen. Yeah. Now, the problem that we've got, and you're right, today, creativity, hell, that's your Bitcoin, that's your, your, your unicorn, whatever you want to call it, creativity. There are two things today which are going to make you wealthy as hell, okay? The art of communication and creativity. You lose either one of those, you're screwed. And mm -hmm. we'll explain why. We've moved into a world of transaction, Okay. We're in an order-taking society. It's nothing unusual. I walked into a friend's house the other day. He walks into the house and he's like, Alexa, put the heat up, you know, Siri, do that. And he's barking orders at these AI machines in his house. Yeah. And he's thinking, this is cool, isn't it? 
And I'm thinking, well, not really. I could turn the dial myself, you know, and I could, I could push the play button. You know, I just think you're outsourcing stuff that you kind of shouldn't, you know. If you're away from the home, hey, that makes sense, so I'm not going to get into that. But the bottom line of it is, is, is teaching us habits to bark orders. Mm-hmm. You bark orders at Amazon. You bark orders at all of these grocery Instacart services. You bark orders at all these AI programs. So that when you meet a human now, you go, hey, I need this. And you expect that given. What I do is I'm very creative, but I'm also very challenging. So someone will come to me and they'll go, Steve, I need this. I'll go, all right, Paul, why? What do you mean, why? This is what I need. No, I heard you, Paul, but I want to understand why this is important. Why are we focusing on that goal? Where did it come from to get to where we are here? And I'll challenge my clients. And I found that that's what they've really liked. Because if you challenge someone's why or their request or their ask, if you challenge it down to where it started from, you actually, nine times out of 10, and I don't think I have ever, but I'm going to go as far as to say, I have never given a client what they asked for. <laughs> because when you challenge it, you find out, well, hang on a minute, I understand that, but why don't we add that to it? And why don't we go down? Why is that important? Let's miss that, because it seems to be kind of weak, and focus on that element of what you want. And all of a sudden, you end up with a completely different ask. Mm -hmm. If you challenge your client, and I'll give you a perfect example, if I may. Um, I had a a coaching client of mine, and they were a real estate agent. And they contacted me, uh, very flustered. And uh, she said, you know, I need need to jump on a call. So, you know, we booked up a quick call and jumped on a call with her. And I said, you know, what's going on? She said, I'm really flustered. I want to grab this client because this client is pretty high profile in my area um but i'm not satisfying her needs in the house that she wants right okay take me through the conversation take me through the uh the ignition of the relationship how how did this start she found out about me she contacted me she said i need a three-bedroom house in this street okay what did you do she said i gave her every three-bedroom house in that area okay not just that street on the, on the splinter streets, on the back and the front, yeah. all the way around, I gave her everything she wanted and nothing would work for her. And I said, well, then it's your fault. She's like, hell, I gave her everything. <laughs> I said, no, no, no. You didn't challenge the ask. Yeah. She's like, what do you mean? I said, well, look, she wants a three-bedroom house on that street. Thank you very much. I hear what you're saying. Why that street? She's like, I'm not going to go back to her. And I said, well, you need to. I said, because if you don't, the bottom line of it is, is if you become a transaction, Amazon's just building a platform at the moment to take your job. Because Amazon has no relationships. It has no loyalty program. It basically transacts on a request. You've got to always be there to challenge what the client wanted. I said, find out why that street. Delve into the reason why, you know, why three bedrooms? That may be easier. Ah. Because I've got two kids, you know? Fine. So we know that's a factual requirement. But why that street? Why are we focused on that zip code? So I had the conversation with her. She went back to the client and she said, and I, we rehearsed, we, we uh, role played this conversation. And she jumped on the phone and she said, Look, you know, I feel as though I'm letting you down. And that's not a comfortable feeling. 
but I want us to go back and find out where I'm missing something. You wanted to be on this street for three bedrooms. She said, yes, that's correct. Why? Now, why is one of the most aggressive, combative, challenging words out there that quite honestly scares people. I'll get people contact me through my DMs and they go, Steve, I live in Los Angeles as well. We should get together for a beer. I just respond with, why? Yeah. You know, and I've had people go nuts. They go, well, I heard you were you were a good lad. You know, you're obviously an arsehole. I don't want to be with you. You know, you, you're a dick. And they've got, and then I've had other people going, good question. I'm working on this program or yeah. I'm trying to do an event and I'm looking for a speaker or I'm looking for a coach. You know, I'll get the why. So she went back and she asked this lady, why that street? And the lady went quiet and then told her that they, uh, they lived about 10 miles outside of town. And that family didn't have much money. But on the weekends, her mum would stick her in this car, no matter where they went, yeah. for shopping to the mall, to go and see their friends, they would drive through this street because this street, that was the it street that was where all the successful people this was this oh my god if i won my uh, the lottery or the powerball or whatever this is the street i would live on so what this woman was doing was trying to basically complete that chapter complete yeah. that story by being on that street but I, everyone knows especially the real estate agents out there the trendy cool successful streets they move and what was trendy and cool and successful 20, 30 years ago, maybe a little bit run down now and vice versa. Think of all the places, yeah. especially I grew up in East London, that you wouldn't walk around at eight o'clock at night and now million dollar lofts and like Soho and Brooklyn, these are yeah. trendy it areas. So we understood the core that she wanted to land in a successful zip code. But this one wasn't it anymore. Yeah. yeah. As soon as she confronted the why, she was able to show her other zip codes of creative, challenging individuals. She sold the first house she showed her. Yeah. So you've got to challenge people with the why. And I think my creativity to be able to, one, think ridiculous, think stupid. In fact, there's no plug because you can't buy it. But I'm working on a book now called Go for Stupid. All of the people that I've worked with have had one thing in common. They've gone for a ridiculous ask. They've gone for a ridiculous challenge. And Elon Musk actually summed it up. He said, they will always laugh at you just before they applaud. <laughs> and most yeah. people, they go for what they think is achievable. They go, for, well, I've got this car. Oh, I really wish I could go for the, for the next grade up, you know, rather than going, hey, I'd like to go for a Bugatti. Oh, I could never get that, you know? People don't go for what they dream of because they don't think that's achievable. So they end up using this word impossible, which validates their inac inadequate to ever get it. You know, that word impossible, it clicks the switch in your head. So I say, lose that word, change it with stupid, ridiculous, uh, um, you know, any of those laughable, change it to one of those words. And now it becomes achievable because you haven't cemented it. So I think I'm challenging and I think I'm creative, but I also think I am heavily in, in, uh, ignorant to um, anyone else laughing at me. I'll go for a goal because, hey, I'm going for that goal.
Now that was stupidity when I was younger, but as I've been able to get these things over the years, and trust me, I'll sit in a room with Elon Musk or the Pope and I'll be like, Whew, how the hell did I get here? But you know, it doesn't make the next reach seem that crazy because yeah. of the past yeah. rooms I've already been in. To go back to that point on um, creativity, do you think then that it's not the harnessing of creativity that's the biggest challenge in business at the moment? It's critical thinking, the not resting on the assumptions, but actually stepping back to understand what the emotional motivations are for the questions they're asking. Yeah, yeah. Um, and again, uh, Elon Musk. Elon Musk took over the test. He took over the old, I think it was the GM factory. Uh, up in uh, um, Silicon Valley, just outside of it, Fremont. And I was up there when it first started and it was a disgusting place. It was toxic. Literally, it was a toxic dump. Yeah. Um, one of the largest buildings in the area. They couldn't sell it because of how much toxicity was in the entire place. So I think the story is Elon bought it for a dollar, but then you know would repair all of this. Um, but he would, he bought that place for a couple of reasons. One, it was massive and cheap, but secondly, he was able to see all of the machinery of how they did things. Yeah. Now, most people have never changed it. They've changed it now, thanks to people like Elon. But at the time it was just a conveyor belt and different machines to make faster conveyor belts. Elon walked around and he said, well, rather than trying to find that machine to go faster, let's first ask ourselves, what does that machine do? Can another machine do it? Therefore, do we need that machine to do it? Yeah. He never looked at fixing a problem. He always looked at why is the problem there in the first place? Yeah. And how many of us actually, even in our home, have something that's broken and go, oh my God, I've got to fix that, but never use it. Yeah. So the point is, rather than focusing on the problem, am I going to use that again? No, I'm not. There's the bin. You know, we focus on fixing things rather than focusing on why the problem was there in the first place. Creative people look outside of the paradigm of fixation and do look at the problem itself. You touched on earlier about the sort of working class upbringing in East London and in the research I did, I know you're you were a bricklayer, you started off as a bricklayer, you're from a family of bricklayers, and I grew up in a similar environment, son of a builder and tradesman and everything else, but I was never cut out to be a builder. Um, and it often seems in my experience, particularly with people that come from that more traditional manual environment, that a lot of imposter syndrome creeps into you as you, you never really shake it off through the course of your career. I'm interested to understand with you coming from East London, and dealing with the some of the most prominent celebrities and business people in the world, how do you how do you manage that internal dialogue, you know, with you and your and your business? And how did you keep keep believing and keep striving for that impossible? If that when you came from the background that you did, um, I didn't. Um, <laughs> is is a is the quick answer to that? It, it kicked me in the gonads like it does everyone else. Yeah. Um, I realized that I needed to be in front of rich people, okay? I also realized that all the people that were in front, now bear in mind, this was the 80s and 90s. 
So can you remember in the 80s and 90s when you went into like a, a Porsche dealership or a Ferrari dealership or an art gallery, you'd always get these people say, oh, good afternoon, sir. We used to joke that if you were dealing with rich people, you became British. You know, there, there was almost this accent that people would kind of, oh, good afternoon, sir. How may I help you? Are oh, you looking at this fine vehicle? Well, you're a fine gentleman. So, of course, you're looking at this fine bit. It was that bollocks. Yeah. You know, there was so much sucking up. And I knew right at the beginning, I was ill qualified to be able to do that. I could not do that. Yeah. Um, I didn't have the pretty look. You know, I, is this a video or is this podcast? It's a podcast, yeah. Right, okay, so anyone listening to this can't see how strikingly good-looking I am, but I'm 240 pounds of, of tattooed, bald biker, you know? I'm not the guy that's going to go, oh, hello, Paul, how are you? Please come in for tea. That's not me, but yeah. that's what was being given out as the prerequisite in the 80s and 90s. But I noticed something very early on. People want solutions rather than sales when you get to a certain level. You see, when you're just starting to make a bit of money, you love the salesman in the watch store, you know, blowing smoke up. You're going, oh, you look the kind of man for this watch. Please try it on. You love all of that. But when you're a billionaire and you just want a nice watch, you just want someone to give you the watch without the baloney. Yeah. Also, the super rich... Zuckerbergs, the Elons, the Steve Jobs, all of these people, they never came from money. So they had a different conversation when they were younger. They yeah. knew what it was like to be poor. So I noticed very early on that I'm actually going to go for creating a solution. Hey, my name's Steve Sims. I believe you got this problem. Let's sort it out. If I became a solution, I didn't have to worry about pretty website. Well, we didn't have the websites in the 80s and 90s, but I didn't have to worry about what I looked like. Yeah, because I'm now a solution. And the metaphor and story that I always quote is it, it, at two o'clock in the morning when you've got a blinding headache and you go into the to the kitchen cabinet to get the headache tablets. When was the last time you grabbed out that little pot and go, no, nah, I don't like that logo. I'm not having those. You just don't care. You yeah. care that whatever's in that pot's going to solve. You could have a piece of turd, you know, as a picture on the front of that packaging. You would not care. Yes. It's just got to solve. So when something becomes solution-based, all of the necessity for the pretties go out the window. When it's aspirational marketing, watches, cars, limousines, tailor-made suits, that's when they're, oh, buy this, and you've made it. That's yeah. the difference between solution-based marketing and aspirational marketing. So when I turned up, I was a solution. I now didn't feel imposter syndrome. Okay, I had no, because again, I was stupid. I also thought that it's not going to work for me. And when we've got nothing to lose, we've got nothing to fear. But then seven years in, I had a contract. And seven years in, I'm working with the, some of the wealthiest families in the planet that you've never heard of that own things like countries, yeah. you know? And I'm literally just hanging out with these people, solving all their problems, getting them yachts, getting them Picasso. I was the mix of, I was the guy that you went to when you needed something. You weren't going to get smoke blowing up your ass. You weren't going to get your joke laughed at if it wasn't funny. You were going to get the job done. You called me in. You know, I was that guy. But then I got a deal with this little car company called Ferrari. <laughs> and we had this party in Monaco 
And about two months, now you've got to understand for anyone that's going to Google me or find out about me, don't be surprised if you see a picture of me with a black t-shirt and a motorcycle because I don't own a car. I haven't owned a car for years. Um, I ride motorcycles of which I've got a nice little collection of. I'll be on two wheels until the day that God says that I'm not. Um, so I would literally, when I go to Monaco, when I go to Japan or when I go to wherever, I don't go to Avis and rent a car. I rent a bike, yeah. you know, because I know what it's like to be on two wheels. So I'm in Monaco and I've suddenly got this car company, this brand, and on the boat are like representatives from Hermes and Piaget and some of them. We had Arnold Schwarzenegger on there. Uh, we had Hugh Grant and Liz Hurley at the time on there. We had the most, you know, the big, the big names. And then the people that just with a swipe of a check were funding their movie for like 13 mil. You know, those, those, the people you don't know that actually fund the movie. The, the movie star, they're making five mil, you know? But the person funding it is making 50, you know? Those were my clients. I literally went nuts. I was like, hang on a minute. I'm going to be at this party next month. I'm already seeing the guest list. And then I remember looking at myself in the mirror when I got back, walked into my apartment. I was living in Switzerland at the time, walked into my apartment, leather jacket on, T-shirt. My beard was all over the place because of the crash helmet, crash helmet in my hand. And I caught a view of myself in the mirror in the foyer of my apartment. And I'm like, I can't go to Monaco with these billionaires. Look, look at me, you know? And I literally run out the following day. I had some suits made. They rushed some suits through for me. I bought an expensive watch, um, all of these things. And I went to the party yeah. looking dapper. Okay. And I had photographs. Now it was, it was back in the days where photographs came on a roll of film. Do you remember those days? <laughs> and they took the photographs and then you'd put the roll of film in an envelope and sometime within the next three generations, you'd get those photographs come back to you. Um, and my wife was taking photographs. She never liked to be in front of the camera. So she's taking photographs of me with all of these powerful people on the yachts, you know, in the pits at the Ferrari, uh, Formula One paddock, all of this stuff. We went back to Switzerland and about three or four weeks later, we got these photographs back. Okay. And I remember sitting in my office, flicking through these photographs. Now, of course, I'm in my office in a black t-shirt and jeans because, hey, I'm back to being me. And I went through all of these photographs and I saw this pillard that was just in this fancy suit, you know, trying to be someone he wasn't. And I realized I never went to that party. Yeah. This, this, this facade went to this party. It gutted me. I realized I had sold out. For what? No one knocked on my door and said, Steve, there's a dress code. You've got to adhere to this. My party! I could have turned <laughs> up in a thong and I'd have been fine. Yeah. Um, but something, that imposter syndrome gone in me. And I was gutted that I'd let it win. Yeah. So literally, I, I put the suit in the back, I never ever wore those suits again. Handmade suits, never wore them again. I ended up giving them out to charity. Um, I took the watch back. They wouldn't give me my money back for it, so I hocked it. You know, I just sold the watch. Um, funny enough, bought a motorbike with it. Um, but I just, I, I was gutted that I had sold out. And I realized then, you're gonna either really like me, relate to me, connect to me, and wanna work with me for being me, 
or you're not. And I realized at the time that a lot of people, especially in business, they worry about the fences. How far can I, can I cast my net? Yeah. Okay. You know, I want to get a thousand clients, but if I just tweak the way I talk a little bit and maybe come across, maybe I can get a million clients. I didn't realize, but at the time I had less than 30. Yeah. And I was living in a penthouse in Switzerland, traveling the planet, first class. You don't need more clients, or you do if you're McDonald's spending 50 cents on a burger. But if you're doing a service-related business, you need the right clients. Yes. And I yeah. realized that I had these clients not because I was pretty, not because I had a fantastical website or anything, but because I got the job done. Yeah. So I've always said now, and I teach my people now, if you've got someone sitting on the fence as to whether or not to do business with you or not, that's your fault. So become, and here's a key, if anyone's writing this down, become impossible to misunderstand. Now, me and you, we're having a conversation. Well, I apologize, we're not. I'm rabbiting <laughs> on and Jordan every now and then. But there's no stress or strain to it, is there? No, that's right. Okay? But how many times have we dealt with a client where we're like, uh, you know, I, I understand what you're saying. Oh, yeah, no, 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 that's fine. And you almost lose this energy. You come off the call and you're like, I'm bloody worn out now. You know, because you've had to tiptoe around this, this arsehole of a client. Well, trust me, arseholes don't get better with age. Okay. Mm -hmm. And they don't improve with checkbooks. So focus on the client and the relationship. And then you can focus on the invoice and the checkbook and the credit card. Yeah. But focus on the client first. And that's what I did. But that imposter syndrome, to answer your question in a not too short answer, it bit me in the ass. It yeah. bit me in the ass. But it, it taught me a lesson which I have never let go. And I will now, I've met the Pope in a black t shirt, met Elon Musk in a black t shirt. You know, sometimes I'll have a jacket on yes. over the black t shirt. But, you know, this, this is as good as it gets. And if you don't like it, hey, don't hire me. <laughs> yeah. you, your business philosophy in the book and, and so on is built around the sort of the art of making it happen. And you talk a lot in your presentations about the need to strip back the complexity and entrepreneurialism in business and just get on with it, so to speak. So I wanted to ask your view about the, I guess, the industry that's growing up around supporting entrepreneurs, because it often feels to me that there's so much conflicting advice for businesses and startups and entrepreneurs, you almost get to the point of inertia rather than momentum, I think sometimes. Is there a case for just ditching it all and focusing on your business and just making your own mistakes and going for it? Yeah. Um, yeah. That's a beautifully point. Uh, and the downside is, and COVID's actually amplified that, you've got a lot of people going, oh, I'm not making any money now. I'll sell an online course on how to make money, you know, um, and they're, they're doing that. And they're trying to solve your problem because they paid a phenomenal copywriter to attack your problem and then get you to open up your wallet. We've always said that for me to be able to sell my coaching, for me to be able to sell my events, for me to be able to sell my online community, my free stuff has to be better than what someone else is charging for. Yeah. So I do a lot of podcasts. I do a lot of videos. I have a free Facebook group called An Entrepreneur's Advantage with Steve Sims. There's a lot of groups out there 
and you've got to go digging. You've got to go fishing. Join them all, okay? Join every kind of free group you can. And the second that they start going down an avenue that you don't like, click the unsubscribe button. In the 80s and 90s, I fell on my face a lot and I failed a lot. And I had no friends to help me. I had no one to support me. And like all entrepreneurs uh, and anyone creative, you feel as though you don't fit in. Mm-hmm. You know, all of the people around you, you dumb down the conversations because you don't want to sound too crazy about what you want in front of your mates and you don't fit in. The beautiful thing about entrepreneurs, and I'm going to reveal it to you, you weren't meant to. You know, the bottom line of it is when you go away, and that's why the, there are good things that have come out of the future, and I hope there always will be. It's not all bad, doom and gloom. But masterminds, um, social platforms, social groups, you know, they are a good place for you to find the right ones. And you're going to spend money on crap masterminds. And then you're going to go into a mastermind. You're going to go, hang on a minute. This is Hogwarts. You know, these are my people. We're all a bunch of crazy dysfunctional misfits. I've come home. And I had, I run an event called a speakeasy, which is my mastermind. And we did one in Arizona uh, three months ago. Um, And there was a client, uh, there was one of the attendees that there was some bad storm. There was this big Texas storm going through at the time, this big cold spell and the flight had been delayed and he wasn't going to get there until like a one o'clock in the afternoon on day one. Now we do our speakeasies every three months and he's been to like clockwork, all of them over three years. And he contacted uh, my assistant, Christy, and he said, look, you know, my, my flight's delayed. I'll be there at one o'clock. So Christy said to me, you know, I'm being, you know, he's being delayed. And I said, look, if he lands at one o'clock, he's not here until like mid afternoon. He's basically missed day one. So tell him, don't fret, go home, be safe. I'm not going to, I'm not going to spank you for the, for the ticket. I'll move your ticket over to the next event. So you don't have to pay for that one and be safe. So she's like, okay. So she contacts him and she comes back over to me with a big grin. And she said, no, 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 he's coming here because he has to come home. And that was his thing. When I spoke to him, he said that just being able to spend two days with other people where he can be him gives him enough energy to go home and dilute himself a little bit before the next time that he can come out and challenge himself. So there's a lot of people out there selling courses. The first thing, and we've already spoke about it, stick with someone that is relatable to you. Now there's a lot of influencers out there and there's a lot of achievers out there. Influencers look great in a swimsuit or look really cool leaning up against a car they don't own. Okay. Go for people that have actually done something and challenge them. Hey, I'm really interested in getting in your community, but why should I, you know, and see what the kind of responses are kind of be. There's people out there and it's a good, and I have, I have three coaches. Okay. And I coach and people go, well, why do you need coaches? If you coach, because I realize I don't know everything yeah. and I need to be held accountable and I need to be refined on a constant basis. So, you know, challenge is what you need and you can get it from social clubs. You can also get it from masterminds. You will find some shit ones, but it's like 
you know, going through a, through a marketplace. You're going to get the bad vegetables and then you'll find the, the dealer that sells the good vegetables. Yeah. And that's who you can then hone in on. But um, get out there. Everyone needs help. Everyone needs the help. And even this podcast, hopefully this is challenging people out there to go, damn it, I am going to do something different. Because yeah. if that idiot from London can bloody be doing it, then hell, I can. And that's what I'm hoping you're going to be saying to yourself. You talked a little bit earlier about falling on your face a little bit in the 80s and 90s, and there was really no one around to, to help you at that point. I wondered early on in your development of the, the service now, the concierge service, and, and what you've developed over the last 20 years, who was a key mentor and support for you through that? Who helped you in the early stages and, and acted as your sounding board? And how did it help you develop the business? So... Wow. Um, so one of the, he didn't, he didn't help me, but he ignited me. Yeah. When I was on the building site, my granddad was in his eighties and was on the building site. And I was like 16 years old. And I ran up to my granddad cause it was pouring with rain. I think it was like 10 o'clock in the morning. I'd already cut myself up on the bricks uh, and on the building site. And I was just generally just pissed off. And I ran up to my granddad, who was just trying to get warm around a fireplace before we had to go out and do the same again. And I said to him, granddad, did you ever think you'd be doing this when you were this old? And again, that's quite a rude thing to say to an 80-year-old man that doesn't have a pension and has to do it because he has to do it. But um, he didn't even look at me. He just blew into his cup of tea and he said, son, and I can remember this vividly, I can even smell everything. He said to me, son, if you don't quit today, you'll be me tomorrow. Mm -hmm. And I quit. Now, I, he was the person that ignited me to go forward. Sadly, he died, and I never got the chance to say thank you to him for that. But it wasn't so much because we didn't have social platforms then. You know, we didn't have any of these masterminds. I remember Tony Robbins came into town, and everyone was like, oh, this woo-woo NLP. Oh, my God, you know, this American client. You can be great, you know, all this kind of stuff. And I didn't go. And then a couple of years later, a friend of mine had bought some tickets and um, felt embarrassed to tell me that he'd bought these tickets. And I remember saying something to him, well, look, you know, if you want better out of your life, then good for you. And he went, one of my friends can't come. You can't. And I went. I actually went to a Tony Robbins thing. And it was a little bit loud and bravado and big and, you know, all this kind of typical 80s Tony Robbins. <laughs> But I realized that the crowd that I was around were aggravated souls. They yeah. demanded and wanted more for themselves. So they were trying to find it. They were searchers. And I remember the, the, the fuel I got from those people. And I never, there was no way of connecting them. I didn't know how I can stay in touch. So I didn't have those support mechanisms until I started getting into the 2000s. And by the time... I hit the 2000s, I had a lot of these billionaire and millionaire clients, which were now friends of mine. Yeah. Um, for argument's sake, I have a media company now uh, that we help people get media, get their copy. Get One of my first ever clients in my concierge firm is actually, and I don't even own the concierge firm anymore. He's now a member of my media company and I work for their companies, getting them the right kind of media. Yeah. So, but he was also one of my mentors because I would go up to him and I'd be like, oh, I'm thinking of doing this. You know, do you think this is a good idea? 
And he would look at me and he'd be like, do you? <laughs> and I remember the time thinking, well, this, this is going to be a stupid conversation. And he's like, no, listen, he said, you've got a ton of energy. But if you plow all of your energy into this, how much money is the end goal going to give you? Yeah. You know? And as entrepreneurs, there's an age-old joke. How do you make an entrepreneur go bankrupt? You look at them and you go, I bet you couldn't do this for $10. <laughs> and what do entrepreneurs focus on? They focus on the challenge, don't they? Yeah. You know? Um, a friend of mine, Peter Diamandis, was the guy that um, established the X Prize and gave $10 million to the first company that could go up into space in a vessel, land, refuel, and go back up again. Okay. And Bert Rattan won it. And Bert Rattan spent $120 million. And he was one of the contestants. Yeah. So he spent $120 million to win 10. Okay. So, you know, it's that kind of philosophy. So I had, I didn't have the mentors at the time, but I did have the experience because you see every time I, and I, I recognize this from successful people later on life, I noticed a trait that I had. Okay. Yeah. Which I was very proud to see successful people. And I'm not saying wealthy people because you don't become wealthy. You become successful wealth comes with it. You know, yeah. it's an, it's an add on. Okay. It's like you diet, you lose weight, you know, bottom line of that. So get your mindset first. I noticed something about all successful people when it goes wrong, they lean into the, uh, to the failure mm -hmm. to see where it went wrong. Non-successful people lean back, hold their head, throw a pity party, cry and go, Oh my God, my life's over. The further you lean away from the problem, the less you can see. The more you lean into the problem, you notice those little things that tripped you up. Um, give you an argument, uh, argument's sake here. Elon Musk decided and discovered that one of the most expensive things about rockets was those massive fuel cells that got them into space. Yeah. So he realized that if he could get those back and just refuel them, he saved an enormous amount of money. So do you remember seeing those uh, rocket cells or those fuel cells landing on the floating platform? Yep. And then what would happen to them? Do you remember what would happen to no, them? I don't, they, I don't know. They would fall over and explode. And you would see it on the news going, oh, you know, Elon loses $100 million. Another fuel cell's gone up in flow. Look at it go. Bang. And you saw those a lot. Have you seen it on the news in the last six, eight months? No. And do you know why you don't see it on the news anymore? Well, I'm assuming because it's not happening anymore because he solved that problem. Bingo. The second it doesn't explode, go wrong, fail, it's no longer newsworthy because yeah. he got it right. It doesn't matter how many times it fails, if you learn from those failures and get, it's only got to go right once and then you've learned. And that's what he did. Every time I was in SpaceX, in Hawthorne, in the actual control room, when that fuel cell uh, failed, everyone outside of the glass looking in went, Ooh. you physically saw every single engineer in the room and Elon grab the table and lean in. They suddenly went, 
Where did it go wrong? They didn't throw their hands back, stomp around and go, oh my God. They immediately went in. Where did that go wrong? And it was a real energizing moment to see. So if you want to be successful, I'm going to tell you, you're going to fail. You're going to fail. You're going to fall over an absolute lot. But this is where you get your MBA. This is where you get your PhD. This is where you learn all of those lessons that make you irresistible, that make you uh, the person that someone wants to have to solve that problem. So relish those moments. When I was younger, I relished my failures because that's where my education was and my empowerment. And then as I got older, I sought to find mentors that could help me. And when, when I went wrong was when I got rid of those mentors again. You know, you get to a stage where you go, well, you know, I'm, I'm spending 100 grand a year on coaches. I don't need those anymore, you know. So you fire them or you say thank you very much. And then the second year, <laughs> you fall over and you go, oh, crap, you know, and you go and hire them back again. And I did exactly that. Yeah. D tell me a bit about the, um, the Sims Distillery. So <laughs> this was one of my failures. Um, the book came out, was very successful. A friend of mine who's very big in online courses said, hey, we need to can I take the book, you know, put it down into like videos and sell an online course, you'll be rich. And so we did that. You know, we dissected some of the book, stuck it online, and it was a 16-step course, course being the key word. And it was horrible. Um, I started getting money, you know, and the money started coming in, but I had no connection. I had no conversation. It was like the people that buy a diet book and they think, well, I bought the book. I'm going to lose weight. You know, I don't have to open it. I bought the book. And there was, a, there was a thing on the course that you could see how many times people went into the course to do any of the courses. Yes. And it would get to like three or four and that would be it. And I was like, I don't want that. I don't want my name on this. So we pulled it off. Um, and then we put it back on about a year later as a community. So Sims Distillery is all of my videos. Anytime I do a video, whether it be on stage, on my own, with one of my friends, I post it up there so you have a library. Mm -hmm. that's, that's your resource. That's your toolkit. If you've got a problem, I've probably interviewed someone that's got the answer. That's your resource. But what people really join it for is it gets you into a private group, a private uh, live group with me, a minimum of twice a month, I come on screen and we have these Zoom calls. I actually run them through StreamYard where we answer your problems. And I will say in my community, all right, every month we're going to get experts in, what's your problem at the moment? And someone will say, oh, I want to know about the world of NFTs. I want to know about how to speak to the millennial market. I want to know what a Gen Z is. I want to know the difference between a Gen Z and a millennial. I want to know how to do better copy. I want to know how to do SEO, Instagram, all these guys. I'll go into my Rolodex. I'll find someone that is world-class at this. And I've had Jay Abraham, Damon John, Ari Mizell, Jim Quick, Jeffrey Madoff. I've had, you know, stellar people that I'm proud to call friends will come in and speak with you. Yeah. It won't be, hey, I did this video. You'll actually be there, participate, and you'll be able to go, hey, I need to ask Damon a, a, a question. All right. What's your question? And they will answer a question. So Sims Distillery became an accountable uh, community that you get to converse with me and you actually get us to answer your problems by bringing the right people in. So 
it was learning that a course didn't work for my style and that a accountable community did. Every crisis creates an opportunity and we've had a large crisis over the last 12 or so months. What's your advice to, to entrepreneurs and business owners in terms of what they do or how they find the opportunity coming back out of the pandemic as we slowly open up, how they look across their business to find opportunity to, to drive it forward at the moment? Well, they don't. Um, it may sound like a silly answer because if you're waiting for the pandemic to finish and then you're going to look for the opportunities, you ain't the kind of person to get the opportunities. Um, there was, uh, I live in Los Angeles and I, I came off the 101 slip road right at the beginning of, of the pandemic. And um, there was this two, there was this um, husband, I don't even know, they may be husband and wife, they might be brother and sister, but there were this couple of, I think, Mexican people uh, at the bottom of this slip road that would always sell flowers. And then on Valentine's, they would sell teddy bears. And then when Kobe Bryant died, they sold T-shirts. They would always be covered. It took less than a month when the pandemic came in that I came off the slip road and they were selling masks. Mm -hmm. This couple, I don't believe they went to a Harvard marketing course, but they knew how to pivot quickly. And my dad used to say, the richest guy on a rainy day is the guy selling the umbrellas. <laughs> you should have been sharpening your sword before you go to war, not waiting for the war to begin and then sit down and go, all right, let's sharpen this little bastard. No, you should have been focusing on what makes you stronger now. Yeah. Now, we're not out of a pandemic. If you're waiting for the pandemic to finish and then you're going to... That's like coming out of a motor race and then you, you, know, you haven't fueled the car up. Yeah. You know, it's just a joke. Focus on how you ask yourself, how have I handled the pandemic? There's a lot of entrepreneurs out there. Maybe you're not ready to be an entrepreneur. Maybe when the pandemic came out, your first question was like, great, what could I binge watch on Netflix? <laughs> you know, maybe you shouldn't be listening to this podcast. But for all of those people that have tried to find opportunities, tried to sharpen their skills and define them, because I believe COVID has been an amplifier, okay? And it's like, it's like alcohol. I believe COVID could very easily be um, equated to, to, to whiskey, and I'll explain why. When you, Paul, do you drink? I do, yeah. Right, okay. If you're in a bad mood and you have a couple of drinks, what does it do to your mood? Generally dampens it. Yeah, if you're in a really, really good mood, and you have alcohol, what does it do? Yeah, absolutely. It lifts you. Lifts it's, an, you. Yeah. it's an amplifier, isn't it? Yep, you know, yep. people go, oh, I'm depressed. I'm going to have a drink. No, that's, that's the worst thing in the world. Alcohol amplifies the mood you're already in. It doesn't change it. It amplifies it. Yep. COVID has amplified how you use your communication skills, how you focus on you, how you stay strong. Any of the businesses that were kind of weak, COVID's changed. COVID has actually saved you 15 years or five years to, came to come to the same conclusion that your business is too weak to survive. So I, I know uh, two years ago, I started a, a new business uh, that I was working on uh, that was going to disrupt the travel business. And then during COVID, I realized it ain't going to work. 
Yeah. And COVID saved me. Now, rather than me going, oh, my God, I've lost money. Are you kidding? You just saved me five years of effort and energy to come up to the same conclusion. Yeah. So thank you, COVID. So you need to be focusing on the skill set that Paul stated at the beginning. Communication, creativity. How has yours been during COVID? Yeah. You... Mentioned in a couple of your interviews, I, I saw when I was researching that passion is the ultimate currency in life, and you've built a global reputation acting on that and delivering that on for your clients. What, what, what is your passion, though? What defines your ultimate currency in life? I love being challenged. Um, I really, I really do, and I will challenge myself on many, many different things. I ride motorcycles. You know, I'll go to a, a sushi restaurant just to give you an example. And on a sushi restaurant, you'll order the the kind of things that you know what they are. You know, I'll always look at the sushi restaurant, especially on the appetizer bit, and go, "Well, I've never heard of these three things. Which one should we try?" Yeah. You know, I have found some stuff I absolutely love, and I've found some stuff that should never be put in anyone's mouth ever. Um, but I've challenged myself, you know, another one that I do is on the, on the internet, cause we're all working from computers now and we're working at home is I have a radio station. I think it's called iTunes and it's all the radio stations all over the world. Yes. Yeah. I will just pick a different country and randomly pick, you know, scroll a bank and I'll pick a radio station and I just, I had Norwegian EDM the other week. Okay. And of course, I'm listening it to it like one o'clock in the afternoon here in Los Angeles, which makes it like, I don't know, five o'clock in the morning or something in Norway. And so I'm listening to early hours Norwegian, North European electronic dance music. <laughs> and I put it on for an hour. Okay. Just to try something different, to challenge myself to listen to something different. Had I not done that, I would not have realized that Norwegian EDM music is the worst music in the planet. And I hate it. But I challenged myself to listen to it, which teaches my brain and opens it up to new channels. So when you look at a business, your mind is already used to trying different things, you know, seeing things a different way. So I think my passion is to constantly be challenged. See, I would hate... And my wife did this the other day in, in America. They had the lottery the other day and it was the highest ever number. It was like, I think it was like three quarters of a billion or something like that. And my wife was buying tickets and we sat down and we had a conversation. And she said, you know, if we won, then our life's good, you know? But if we won the kind of money where you don't even have to get out of bed, you know? what would you do? Mm. She said, you know, would, would you still coach? You know, would you still speak? Would you still do the online stuff? Would, would you still train? And I had to say to her, yeah, I would. Because I love coaching clients that say to me, hey, I've got a problem with X, Y, Z. And I go, great, let's get it going. You know, oh, I need to do this. I need to, great. Let's, I need those challenges. Um, you can never say, or I'm frightened to say, hey, I don't need the money, you know, because I think we, we need the money to pay the bills and keep the lights on, but I need the challenge. Yeah. You know, if you gave me the money, 
and said, all right, Steve, you've got the money now. Please don't go out and do your business anymore. Please don't go out and help people. Please don't go out and coach, speak, train. That would be upsetting. And in fact, if I had to decide on the pair, I would avoid that one. Yeah. I would be focusing on the people and the challenges. Steve, we always end the, the podcast with asking guests to give one or two, and you've given a multitude during the last hour, but one or two sort of tips that they can go away and apply and think about and apply in their business. What would you like to leave listeners with? All right, so let me be subtle. As an entrepreneur, the first time you do anything, it will be shit. <laughs> That's the bottom line. Paul, how many podcasts have you done? A uh, hundred. How bad was your first one? I can tell you a long story about how bad that was, yes. The first time we do anything, it's yeah. crap. The sole purpose is to get going, then get good, okay? Paul's good on a... I doubt if the first podcast you ever did probably even ever got released, did it? It got released, but only because I had to re-record it. I had to ask the guest to... Because I ballsed up the technology so much, I had to re-record the whole interview. There you go. So... Let yourself off the hook. You're not going to come out of the gate perfect. Yeah. Just come out of the gate. That's the first thing. Second thing, I'm going to quote my dad. And my dad wasn't the sharpest tool in the shed. But when I was a young lad, 15 years old, we're walking through London. He's a chain smoker. So he had one cigarette going and one ready to be lit up in his other hand. He put his hand on my shoulder and he said, son, no one ever drowned by falling in the water. They drowned by staying there put his cigarette back in his mouth and carried on walking. At the age of 15, I stopped and I was like, fuck was that? You know, I had no idea. I thought he'd just been consumed by a fortune cookie. <laughs> it wasn't until I got older that I realized that you have the choice as to whether or not to stay there. Yes. So please think of that. Next time you fall over, realize you're in control. Steve, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for your time today. Uh, thanks for the question. But great questions. Thank you very much. Cheers, buddy. If you've enjoyed the conversation today with Steve, then go to stevesims.com and learn more about what Steve does and how he works with entrepreneurs. And you can also find the links and the notes that accompany this podcast. And if you've enjoyed today's conversation with Steve, then please do take a moment to check out the rest of our new PL episodes. The new PL to the points on Friday and the new PL Deep Discussions, which we publish each Wednesday. Please do also take a moment to rate us or review us. It all helps with our ratings and our rankings. So I'm Paul, host of the new PL. Thank you once again for listening today and have a great day.